The text for our sermon tonight is Luke 23, verse 34a, the first part of the verse, which reads, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, bless the proclaiming of your sacred word tonight. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Amen. Our theme for this year's Lenten series of sermons is the seven last words of Christ. Now, the seven last words are really seven statements. Sometimes we refer to the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue, which means the ten words. They're not single words, they're they're statements. Now, the Gospels record that during the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross, He made seven statements. And these are tremendously important because they're Jesus' last words before His death. Tonight, we look at the first word recorded in Luke 23, 34, which reads, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our message tonight answers two questions. Who was Jesus not praying for and who Jesus was praying for? Now, there are three mistakes that people make about this text. First, some assume that Jesus prayed based on the ignorance of his persecutors, like they didn't realize what they were doing. Secondly, some assume that Jesus is seeking forgiveness for those immediately responsible for his death. And thirdly, some assume that Jesus is praying for all men head for head. Now, with regard to that first misconception, you know, we all know the old saying, ignorance is no excuse. But it's just completely false to say that the Jews didn't know who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. They were fully aware. In John chapter 11, verses 47 through 50, we read that the priests and the Pharisees plotted Jesus' death fully aware of his miracles, which recently included raising Lazarus from the dead. 1 Samuel 2.6 declares, The Lord kills and makes alive. If Jesus raised the dead, then he was the Messiah. He's Lord over life and death. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, which are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, it is clear from that context that he isn't saying that the Jews and Romans wouldn't have killed Jesus if they realized who he was. No, they knew. They had seen his miracles. Their own mouths testified against themselves. No man ever spoke like this man. Paul is saying that fallen men hate God so much that had the Jews and Romans realized that God was working salvation by Jesus' death, they wouldn't have killed him. Their hatred of God's righteousness was so great that they killed Jesus to shut him up. Their hatred of God's righteousness was also so great that had they realized that Jesus' death was God's plan, they wouldn't have killed him so they could thwart God's plan. Now, most people's assumption is that 
Had they known, they wouldn't have killed him. And then based on that first false assumption, they make a second false assumption that Jesus sought forgiveness of them on the basis of their unawareness. But in Acts 2, 23, Peter says to them, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Now, if they were really ignorant of who Jesus was, Peter would have said, look, I know you guys don't realize what you were doing. No, he calls them lawless. And Scripture never makes ignorance a reason for pardon. Now, Romans 1, and we're going we're gonna to stay in this chapter a while. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What about the, the innocent native who's never heard the gospel? He doesn't exist. Scripture declares that nature reveals enough about God to condemn all men. There's no such thing as pardonable ignorance in God's economy. Romans 1, verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the biblical definition of ignorance. Futile mind, darkened heart. God debases their minds and darkens their hearts as judgment because they rejected the knowledge they did have. The tribesman in the jungle may not have access to a Bible, but he ain't innocent. He sins against whatever knowledge he has, be it ever so small. Then a few verses later, we read of these same people, since they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. That ain't I didn't know ignorance, that's evil. Since they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. What things that are not fitting? Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They know better and they do it anyway. That's the biblical definition of ignorance. Scripture always links ignorance with a willful rejection and disobedience to God. Biblical ignorance is not being unaware. It's denial of reality. All men know God exists. Ignorance is acting as if he doesn't. And that's not an innocent mistake. It's a judgment of God upon those who spurn the light. Scripture always links ignorance to willful disobedience. So it can never be a reason for pardon. Biblical ignorance isn't, I didn't know better, but I knew and I did it anyway. 
So when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he couldn't have been asking, Father, forgive them, because they don't realize what they're doing. Jesus wasn't asking for pardon as if ignorance was an excuse. Nor was he asking pardon for those who were immediately responsible for his death because they weren't innocent. They were sinning against the light. Now, let's compare two narratives from Scripture that hopefully will help us understand the ground-level assumption of Jesus' first word. And we'll compare Sodom and Gomorrah on the one hand versus Nineveh on the other. God never sent a preacher to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was nearby. Two angels went there to rescue Lot, but no preacher was ever sent to warn them. They sinned and they died. God's just judgment literally fell on them. Nineveh was also a very wicked city, but because God willed to save some of them, he sent Jonah to preach. Now, God didn't pardon them unilaterally because they were ignorant. Look, God even says to to Jonah that there are over 120,000 people here who don't know the right hand from the left. But that wasn't reason to pardon them. God sent Jonah to preach repentance. They repented, and they were pardoned, and therefore they were spared. God only pardons the repentant, not the ignorant. Jesus wasn't asking pardon for anyone based merely on ignorance because Scripture equates ignorance with divine judgment for willfully rejecting known truth. Jesus was praying that the Father would give saving knowledge of the truth to the elect. God sends His Word where He wills, and He opens the minds of those whom He's chosen to save. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That passage does not say, a man sees the kingdom of God and thinks to himself, hey, I want in on that, and then he believes. No, a man believes because he's already been born again. The new birth comes before faith. A man who's not born again can no more believe than a dead man can raise his hand. If I say, hey, everyone here who's dead, raise your hand, what'll happen? If anyone raises their hand, they ain't dead. Jesus says, Let him who has ears to hear, hear. He doesn't say, let him who has ears listen. It's not a question of listening. It's a question of hearing. You can have ears without the ability to hear. The ability to hear the gospel when it is preached and see its application to your own soul, that's a gift of God. That's a mark of the new birth. Now, right there on Golgotha, the prayer is beginning to be answered. Luke tells us that two criminals were crucified, one on either side of Jesus. One mocks and curses him. The other says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what caused one man to persist in blind hatred of God and the other to repent? The father was answering the intercession of his son, who was right then praying for the salvation of his elect. That thief was demonstrating saving faith by calling this this mangled carpenter Lord and King. God had opened his eyes in answer to the prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them. 
I think that you can see that I'm interpreting Scripture with Scripture. God is His own interpreter. We're never to hold a text of Scripture in isolation from the rest of the Bible. All of Scripture must be brought to bear on any passage we seek to understand. Now, John chapter 13, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse, confirms what we're saying. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, the first obvious thing in this text is that Jesus hasn't chosen all of the disciples to salvation. I know whom I have chosen. I'm not speaking of you all. God's sovereign choice of some to salvation and others to perdition is the most basic definition of election. When you get a ballot, it says, choose one. Now, if you go down and select all the candidates, your ballot will be invalid. Because elect means to choose some and reject others. Biblical election can't possibly mean that God has chosen all men to salvation or that Jesus died for the salvation of all men. The very word election rules this possibility out. It's also obvious who Jesus was referring to there in John 13. It's Judas. God knows whom he has chosen. Jesus knows, and he knows whom he hasn't chosen. And this is important because From now on, John 14 through the end of that book, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he's not including Judas. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And he's referring to the 11 whom he has chosen to salvation. Remember, Judas is gone. He leaves right after the supper, sells out Jesus to the Jews, comes to Gethsemane to identify him, and then goes and commits suicide. He never rejoins the group. Now, having said everything we've said so far, let's analyze what Jesus says in John chapter 17, a chapter that is known as Christ's high priestly prayer. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus is going to tell us what his prayer from the cross means. In John 17, verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them, the 11 disciples. I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says, I pray for them. And he means his disciples, minus Judas. So when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, we know that the them can only mean the elect, those for whom he died. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's reformed. This is the core of the reformed faith. It's baked into all of our confessions, our catechism, even into our hymns. For instance, in Crown Him with Many Crowns, we sing, Crown Him the Lord of Life, who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious in the strife, for those He came to save. There it is, right there in our songs of praise, we acknowledge that Jesus died and rose again, not for all men indiscriminately, but for those He came to save. It's for them that He died. It's for them that He prayed, Father, forgive them. Now, the logic is clear. Jesus isn't asking pardon for ignorance. 
The Father gives, forgives those who repent and believe. And the only ones who repent and believe are those whom the Father has given to the Son. The Son dies for those whom the Father gives Him. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And then a few verses later, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you don't believe because you aren't my sheep. He's telling them point blank, you aren't my sheep. My death isn't for you. So he won't be praying for them. Now let's ask a question. For whose sins then did Jesus die? Now realize that there can only be three possible answers to that question. A, all the sins of everyone. Now if this were true, all would be saved. But we already know that Judas perished. If there's even one sinner in hell for whose sins Jesus died, well then Jesus failed. Second option, some of the sins of all men. Now, if this were true, no one would be saved. If Jesus had died for only some of our sins and not all of them, that'd be no different from leaving us completely unatoned for. Unless all my sins are forgiven, I can't enter heaven. Third option is all the sins of some men. And that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus died for all the sins of his elect, those whom the Father gave him his sheep. So, to come back to our text, we've seen that Jesus died only for those whom the Father had given him. Why would he pray for those whom he knew the Father hadn't given him? Especially after he has just said, Father, I pray for them, my people, and not anyone else. To have Jesus pray for those whom the Father hadn't given him would be putting the, the Father and Son at cross purposes with each other in the very work of salvation. And that's as foolish as it is blasphemous. Everyone the Father elects, the Son dies for. Everyone the Son dies for, the Spirit calls. But that's not all mankind. The existence of hell proves that it couldn't have been God's intention to save everyone. If we say that Jesus died for all the sins of all men, then there's a second question. Why do some men then perish? Now, the Arminians will say, well, because of their unbelief. But isn't unbelief a sin? So what? Jesus died for all sins except unbelief? Unbelief is sin, and all sin is unbelief. Now, in 1 Samuel 3.14, God says, The iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Jesus didn't die for the sins of Eli's house. He wasn't praying for them when he said, Father, forgive them. In John 6, 37 through 39, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. Did the Father give everyone to the Son? Well, he didn't give Judas. In John 17, Jesus says, Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Now, who's this son of perdition? It's Judas. Why is he lost? That the Scripture might be fulfilled. 
What scripture? Psalm 41.9, which Jesus already quoted in John 13. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas perished not because Jesus wasn't able to save him, but because he was eternally predestined to damnation. The only one of Jesus' disciples who was lost was the one specifically appointed to this destruction. If Jesus didn't die for Judas, well, then he didn't die for everyone. Judas committed suicide prior to the crucifixion, so he was already in hell when Jesus died. So Jesus couldn't have died for him. If we find one exception to the Jesus died for everyone, then it can't be true. And Judas is an obvious exception. And how about all the people already in hell prior to the cross? How can you maintain that Jesus died for everyone when they were already eternally condemned? Remember in the story of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus with a drop of cool water to cool his tongue. And Abraham tells him, look, it's not going to happen. There is a chasm between us. No one here can go there, and no one there can come here. Once you're in hell, there's no getting out. So Jesus couldn't have died for them because they were already condemned. That logic is airtight. There's no way around it. That's what Scripture says. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, he couldn't have been praying for pardon for all men indiscriminately. And if he couldn't have been doing it, he wasn't doing it because God does not engage in nonsense. Think of that glorious prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 11. Speaking of Jesus' atoning death, it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Now, if Jesus died for all men head for head, and yet millions of them still perish, would he be satisfied? And the last words of that verse are, He shall bear their iniquities. Bear iniquities is the same thing as die for. Remember when the Old Testament saints presented their lambs for sacrifice? They placed their hands on the lamb's head, and that signified a transfer of guilt. My sins transferred to this innocent lamb who will die in my place. Jesus bore the iniquities of those he died for. He died for those whose iniquities he bore. No one whose iniquities were borne by Christ can still perish. How could your debt be paid and you still be held accountable? That makes no sense at all. To say that God still damns souls to hell after Jesus died for their sins makes a mockery of the cross. Look, even in our flawed court system, we know the injustice of double indemnity. If I've been acquitted, I can't be tried again for the same thing. If Jesus died for my sins, how can I still be sent to hell for them? If a man is sent to hell, Jesus didn't atone for him. Simple as that. Now let's return to the prayer and see how it was answered. And we've already seen a glimpse of it in the repentant thief, but there are more glorious answers to this prayer. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is martyred for his Christian faith. He's the first martyr of the New Testament church. After preaching one of the most fiery sermons ever, the Jews rush upon him and stone him to death. Acts 7, verse 58 says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. As he is dying, 
Stephen prays, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Now, you've got to admit, that sounds strikingly reminiscent of Jesus' first word on the cross. Then a couple of verses later, we read, Saul was consenting to his death, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. In the next chapter, we read, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So why did the men who stoned Stephen lay their coats at Saul's feet? He was the ringleader of the Jewish persecution of Jesus' disciples. He was deputized to hunt down Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem for prison or death. The men who stoned Stephen presented their witness testimony to Saul, and when they executed sentence against Stephen, they laid their coats down at the feet of the boss. What happens next? Jesus saves Saul, also known as Paul. Do you see the connection? Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Stephen prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then Jesus knocks Paul off his horse and makes him an apostle. And that's Paul's own understanding of his experience. In Galatians 1, 15, he says, When it pleased God, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, he called me through his grace. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Who did Jesus pray for? He prayed for the criminal crucified next to him. He prayed for Paul. He prayed for everyone who ever has and ever will believe savingly in him. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Christ intercedes as our priest. Now, think of the work of the Old Testament priest. It was twofold. He offered sacrifice, and then he prayed that God would honor the sacrifice and forgive his people. The priest didn't offer sacrifice for the Philistines or Canaanites, but only for God's people. That's who they interceded for. Jesus says, I pray for my disciples. I don't pray for the world. In other words, my intercession extends as far as my death. Jesus doesn't die for those he refuses to pray for, and he doesn't refuse to pray for those he died for. So can you see the comfort to be drawn from this first word on the cross? Jesus wasn't offering some wishy-washy, generic, I hope everyone's okay prayer. It was specific and intentional. And it has been specifically and intentionally answered by the Father. Jesus is our intercessor with the Father. He is praying for us, for you. He's acquainted with all your trials, all your temptations, weaknesses, and suffering. And he constantly prays for you with a prayer that cannot be denied. Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. This same Jesus intercedes for me and for all those for whom he died. Let us pray.